Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We are a Seattle-based community that believes all people are icons of the invisible God, made in His image to reflect His glory and grace. Hey, Icon, Justin here, and we're on video. Uh, this is the plan for the foreseeable future as uh, our city is uh, on increasing lockdown. So um, here's what uh, I want us to be thinking about for these next couple of weeks at least, um, is that the point of gathering together on a weekly basis is not just uh, to kind of get the sermon or to see your friends or whatever, whatever it is, whatever reason you have to go to church that there is something really important about the gathering of God's people for the sake of worship, uh, for the sake of, of sitting under the teaching of the Word of God, and all these things together. So what I would encourage you to do for these next maybe six weeks even um, is, is set up a time. You know, make an appointment for this with your family, with your community group, whoever you're going to be gathering with. We're going to write a liturgy for you as we have this week. We're going to do that every single week. But, you know, get dressed. Uh, sit down at 10 o'clock together, make an appointment and build a rhythm uh, around this. This is not intended for you to just listen to on your drive uh, to work uh, or to do by yourself, but this is part of our gathering. It's part of the liturgy uh, and the message is just a piece of that. So I really encourage you to build a rhythm around that. Now, what can we do uh, during this time of coronavirus crazy, right? So a couple things. One is um, we can pray. And I know that sounds trite. I know it sounds like, uh, you know, the kind of the simple Christian answer, but it's only trite if you don't actually believe that prayer does anything, okay? But as Christians, that's not what we believe. We believe that prayer does a lot, that prayer is massively powerful because it connects us to a massively powerful God. So pray. Pray specifically, pray that the virus would slow, pray that people wouldn't die, pray that your loved ones would not contract the virus. Like pray earnestly that God would protect our city. Two, um, consider if you have uh, domestic workers in your employee, if you have a housekeeper or landscaping people or whatever, to continue to pay them. Those are the people that are the most vulnerable in times like this, that are hourly workers. Uh, that you know, if, if things shut down, they don't get work and they don't get paid and then they can't pay their bills, they can't buy food for their family. So if you've got a house cleaner, a landscaper, uh, any kind of domestic worker, hourly pay people, continue to pay them as long as you can and in whatever ways that you can. Uh, tip your baristas, tip your, uh, your waiters well. Uh, when the DoorDash guy comes and brings you your Indian food, tip him well. Uh, because these are ways that we can really love our neighbors during this kind of crazy time. Um, some of us have kids, uh, some of us have a lot of kids, and uh, during this school closure, uh, my wife is now, uh, on top of everything else, homeschooling our three kids and caring for our five kids uh, all day long, which is a ton. So there's a bunch of families in our uh, community that are dealing with the similar things where uh, the wife and the husband work and they've had maybe a babysitting situation or they've had kids in school and now they don't. So whatever, to whatever degree you can, I would really encourage you babysit. Right? That's an easy way to, to love your neighbor, to love the people around you. So whether that's people in our community or people in your neighborhood, and if you can babysit, babysit. Uh, and then lastly, wash yourself, okay? For crying out loud, wash yourself. So it's not that hard, wash your hands, 
uh, sneeze into your uh, elbow. Do, do whatever you can do just at a really practical level uh, to stem the tide of the spread because that's the way we can literally love our neighbors. Um, stay away from old people. Maybe, uh, maybe you've got some grandparents in your life, great grandparents, man, uh, love them from afar, send them very nice emails, but don't go near them because they're the most vulnerable in this thing. So all that being said, I want to dive into today's message. We are going to continue in John. I'm going to preach uh, here in the office for the next couple of weeks and, and we're going to do this. Okay. So, uh, we're in John chapter four. Uh, we are going to start in verse 27 uh, this morning, and so uh, let's do that together. Go to, go to verse 27. We're going to recap just a little bit of what we've looked at for the last couple of weeks just uh, to give some context and then move forward. Here's what I want us to see in this section. We're going to finish John 4. Um, Jesus uh, is going to interact with a bunch of different people, and uh, spoiler alert, they're all going to get saved. Okay, so that's the end of this story. They all get saved. So uh, what I want us to see in it, though, is not necessarily the reaction of all the people, but how Jesus goes about bearing witness, right? So this time with coronavirus and all this doesn't change or shouldn't change the way in which we witness to the gospel, but it can be a catalyst for us to think about it a little bit differently. Um, and I think there are some opportunities for us to to be a little more obvious in the ways in which we're different, right? So um, I just read uh, a moment ago that uh, Costco downtown in Soto uh, was insane. Like there was basically a fight uh, over the toilet paper, which you know makes me think people don't understand what's happening here when they're fighting over toilet paper, right? It's not a snowstorm. It's we can still get toilet paper, but you know, if you want to fight over toilet paper, you go for it. Um, but like there is a there's a panic, there's a fear that has captured our city in ways that doesn't need to capture us. And so we have an opportunity to be a gospel witness in this kind of crazy moment. Uh, and, and it stands out maybe in ways that it wouldn't otherwise. Right. Specifically, I think what people are feeling right now is helpless. Right. They're they're feeling like this this outside force has changed their life and they're helpless to do anything about it. So for us as Christians, here's the cool thing. Um, we're we know we're helpless. Right. Like like that's part of the deal. That's part of what we believe about the world is that God is sovereign, that God's in charge and we're always helpless. So moments like this where we've got a virus that's out of our control and we feel more helpless doesn't actually, we're not any more helpless today than we've ever been. It just, the, the veil of foolishness has been pulled back so that instead of us feeling like we're not helpless and we're in real control of our lives, now we're just, we all know how little control we have. So for us as Christians, we should not be responding in fear. We should be responding in faith. Right? So this is just a little way that in moments like this, we can respond differently and then as a result, bear witness to the gospel in, in really powerful ways. So what I want us to see is a couple of different ways, three different ways that Jesus uh, is bearing witness to the gospel. And the net effect of that is that people are getting saved. Before we get into the, like, these three little strategies, um, I want us to remember that one of the things we say at Icon all the time is that the Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting. We've got a part to play. God chooses to use us in his saving work. But at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit is the one doing all the heavy lifting. 
Okay, so these are ways in which the Holy Spirit moves through us, through our activity, but in the end, it's our sovereign God who saves. It's the power of God that saves, that heals, that makes us whole again. So I want us to look at these three things. They all start with a P because, you know, coronavirus affects our memory, and I want you, I want you to remember that. So they all start with a P, okay? Verse 27 it says, Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him, right? So uh, as a recap from last week, Jesus stops at this well in Samaria. Samar uh, the Samaritans are like uh, the anti-Jew, right? They, they are mortal enemies. They are considered by the Jews to be dogs, right? They, they are not their people. Um, but Jesus stops in Samaria, talks to this woman who has a pretty checkered past and ministers to her in the midst of all of her uh, deflections and changing the subject and, and all of these things. So Jesus breaks all these social norms he risks offending her by bringing up her checkered past. And then he kind of wades through all her deflections um, in order to communicate to her the gospel that she needs. So what I want us to see in this moment is that the power of God transforms this woman from being an outsider to being an influencer. And I don't mean like she's got a rad Insta or killing TikTok, but like an influencer in her city through the persistence of Jesus, the persistence of Jesus, right? So Jesus pushes through all of her deflections and in the end, she gets it like enough that she runs into town, bears witness about who Jesus was. And then it says that all the people from her town were coming out to see Jesus, right? Jesus won't give up because he knows that what she needs the most is the gracious truth of the gospel. And so he does, he's not, he, he's not uh, uh, buffered by her, uh, by her deflections and by her change in the subject. He just keeps going. He keeps pushing. He, he is persistent in his presentation of the gospel. So in our world today, we've got this thing called the Seattle freeze, right? Where we try to make friends with people and they're like, yeah, 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 you're cool, but they keep it at a distance. So then the question is, so what? What do we do? We, we, we hit that Seattle freeze with someone in our lives that we're trying to kind of uh, share the gospel with. What do we do? Do we give up or do we keep showing up? Do we keep pushing? Do we keep asking? Do we keep talking? Do we keep inviting? What, what does that look like? How do we respond to that same kind of deflection that we experience here in Seattle? Um, I've been a pastor for the last about 20 years, and the only real job I've had in the last 20 years was one time where I uh, was on a long sabbatical and worked for a buddy of mine who sold software. And so I was a salesperson uh, for a software company. And, and I will just tell you, it was terrible. Love my buddy, love what he was doing, but cold calling people to sell them technology is horrible. And especially, I was selling to churches, which man, don't even get me started on that. But the process um, caused me to do a bunch of research on sales because I didn't want it to suck as bad as it did. And so here, here's what I learned. On average, it takes eight cold calls to reach a prospect. 
and, and I, I was way below average. It was taking me 12 to 15, but eight cold calls to reach a prospect. 80% of sales require five follow-ups after the first contact. And I realized that a trillion dollars a year is spent on salespeople every single year in the United States. Here's what that means. The key to sales is don't give up. The key to evangelism, don't give up. Be persistent. Be persistent like Jesus was persistent with this woman at the well. So if God has put someone in your life and they have repeatedly rebuffed your attempts to love them, to share the gospel with them, don't give up. Because this is what they need more than anything else. They need the gracious truth of the gospel. And I think that there is an instinct in us to think, and I don't want to be rude. I don't want to, you know, I want to be nice. I don't want to be, I don't want to be pushy. But there is a way in which we can be so nice that we let someone die. And those are the stakes, right? Not to be dramatic, but those are the stakes. If we believe that the gospel is the gospel, then we believe that what we have to share is the path to life and letting them, you know, kind of change the subject and not understand the gospel is literally just letting them walk to their death. And, and let's love those people better than that. Right. All right. So that's number one, the persistence of Jesus. Number two, skip to verse 39 it says many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She said, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. So now all of these Samaritans, not just this one random woman, but all of these Samaritans invite Jesus into their town, which is crazy that they would invite a Jewish rabbi into their town. And then he went and stayed with them for two days, which is even crazier, right? So I've been trying to figure out what is the right illustration for this. I'm new to Seattle. I've only been here a couple years. I don't know who is Seattle's arch enemy. Is it people that live in Portland? Is that who the best analog is? Is it 49er fans? Is it, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Is it, uh, I, don't, I don't even know who the Sounders biggest rival. I have no idea. Whoever hates their scarves, right? Like that's who uh, the rival is, right? So. This is the Samaritans inviting a Jewish rabbi. It's the Jewish rabbi saying yes and spending two years with them. And here's what happened. He preached and they all got saved, right? Verse 41 says, many more believed because of his word. Verse 42 says, they is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves, right? Jesus preached and they all got saved. So the power of God transformed the Samaritans through the preaching of Jesus. Now, you might have heard that it was said, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Two things on that. One, it's often attributed to be St. Francis of Assisi, which gives it you know, some real weight. It wasn't, there's no record that he ever said that. Two, that's dumb, right? Super dumb. Don't listen to that. Anyone, anytime someone says, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words, say, no, that's dumb. Because uh, the Bible says the exact opposite all the time, right? So John 1, 1, 
the Son of God was called the Word. Hebrews 11.3, the universe was created with a Word. Hebrews 1.3, that all things are held in existence by the Word. 1 Samuel 3.21, that God reveals himself to us through the spoken word. Hebrews 3.13, that our faith is sustained by words. We fellowship with God by the words of prayer. We worship him through the words of song and confession and preaching. Our relationships are all sustained and nurtured by words. Politicians rise and fall by their words, or at least they do in normal times, right? Words play this massive role in our lives, massive role in the scriptures. So the idea that we shouldn't explicitly preach the gospel or, or explain the truths about God and we should just like act it out only is crazy. It's foolish, right? Jesus preached, people got saved. We need to hear. We, we live in an age where there is more information than ever. We're constantly taking in words. And if those words that we're taking in and those words that we're speaking aren't the words of the gospel, man, what are we giving people? So I'll ask you, do you know the words? Do you know the words to say? Do you know how to preach the gospel? Do you know how to explain the truth about God and his gracious, gracious gospel? And if not, it's not an excuse. Learn them. Read them. Find them. Be trained on them. Be, pay attention to my sermons for once, right? Pay attention. Read. Grow. Find the words. I mean, it's not an excuse to go, oh yeah, I just don't know how, right? Like, is there any other part of your life where that would be a viable excuse? Try that with your boss. Try that with your spouse. Try that with a friend. Well, I would tell you I love you, but I just don't know how. Okay, well, then you don't really love me if you're not figuring out how. Well, I would do that project, but I don't know the words to say. I don't know the words to write. Well, learn them or lose your job, right? We're talking about the greatest stakes that there could be. It was the preaching of Jesus that led all of these Samaritans uh, to be saved. So it is the spoken word of God that changes people's lives. So learn the words. Number three. Verse 46 it says, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, calm down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus has said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now, this official was probably a Roman centurion, right? And one of the things that we should pick up on this story that we might not otherwise is none of these people are Jews. 
right? The first story was about Nicodemus, a very powerful Jew. And then it was a Samaritan woman who is obviously Samaritan, not a Jew. And then all the Samaritans and now this Roman Gentile non-Jew. So what's interesting is Jesus has this long conversation with Nicodemus, this Jewish leader. At the end, doesn't get saved or doesn't show us that he responded in faith. And then John shows us that the Samaritan woman, all of these Samaritans, and now this Gentile, this Roman centurion, all respond to Jesus in faith. What's John trying to show us? Well, he's trying to show us that Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John 3.16 are true. That for God so loved the world that whosoever believed him in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? Like these are words that we need to hear because most of us here in Seattle are surrounded by people who are not believers. They're not church people. They are the furthest thing from it. They are Samaritans and they are Roman centurions. They are pagans, as this Roman centurion would have been in the literal sense, pagan. And, and they are heretics, right? Like that's who we are surrounded by. And I don't say that to create any kind of weird us, them, we're in this dark place kind of deal. But just to go, this is the reality. And so this should encourage us that John is making this huge point that the power of God can save anyone, even them, whoever them is, the power of God could save Samaritans. The power of God could save the Roman centurions who were pagans, who were far from God. There was no social advantage to becoming Christian. And yet they did, right? So here we see this the patience of Jesus. So we saw the persistence of Jesus. We saw the preaching of Jesus and now the patience. Now, where do we see the patience? Um, if you look in the story of the Roman centurion, verse 48, this guy comes to Jesus and says, please, will you heal my son? Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus' frustration is, is showing a little bit here with the, with the Galileans, that they need these signs. They need these amazing things to happen. They already saw the water into wine, and now they're all coming back to him, and this guy says, will you please heal my son? Now, is there anything wrong with the signs? No. John has already pointed out a number of times that Jesus does these signs so that people would believe. But the signs are kind of like the, the fireworks show that, that, that can obscure the more substantive thing. They're important, but there's so much more. I have a friend who um, is in film and wants to be in film, wants to do movies and all of this, and he always tells me that his favorite movie is Armageddon, to which I think, Okay, that's a great movie. You know, Bruce Willis uh, saving the world on a meteor. Great movie. Uh, but there's so much more to film than Armageddon. I know that sounds crazy, but there's like really good movies with plots and dialogue and all that stuff. It's like Armageddon, you're just scratching the surface as to what could be. Let's move past the Jerry Bruckheimer explosions and, and get to the real stuff, the good stuff. So Jesus goes, listen, I, I get that I'm turning water into, water into wine. I get that I'm healing people and this is all great, but man, don't miss the substance of who I am and what I'm doing. Here's the other thing about the signs. Oftentimes I hear people say, well, why doesn't God just do a sign or have this crazy thing? And I would believe. And I, I'm suspicious if that's actually true because I actually think God does things all the time and we forget them very quickly. I remember having a conversation with a guy who's a non-Christian and his name's Eric, really good guy. 
um, his girlfriend was a devoted Christian and she had been in a horrific car accident in which she absolutely should have died, but she didn't. And I remember telling my friend Eric saying, listen, um, your girlfriend uh, says that that was a miracle. Right. And, and, it, and it was like statistically improbable. Um, but do you believe her? And he goes, no. I said, so, so what kind of miracle would it have to be in order for you to actually believe? See, sometimes I think that this kind of thing is a red herring, right? It's something we go, well, if God would do that, then maybe I'd believe. And I go, I don't know that you would. Like if God actually provided the thing that you say you would actually believe if he provided, would you still believe or would you just pivot to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing? Is it actually satisfying or is that just an excuse that you're using to kind of keep God at a distance and not have to believe? Here's the thing I want us to see about Jesus. In spite of the fact that the centurion comes to him for a miracle and Jesus expo exposes a little bit of frustration about that, he's still patient with him. He still saves his son. Right? Like the power of God transformed this Roman centurion from a pagan to a Christian and not to mention his son from death to life through the patience of Jesus. That Jesus was able to go, listen, uh, this guy is not coming to me for the substance of who I am or the substance of, of my message. But you know what? This is where this is the need he has today. And I'm going to meet that need in hopes that that will lead him to faith. And you know what? It pays off. Jesus goes one step at a time. I, I'll meet this need today knowing that you're only able to take one step at a time. And that step right now is this step of faith to come to me with your need, come to me with your helplessness and, and let me meet that need for you. And then the guy gets saved and his whole household gets saved. Right? So we see in this, let's zoom out, we see in this this approach of Jesus, right? His persistence, his preaching, and his patience with these people. And the result is that everybody gets saved. I want us to see one more thing. Go to verse 31. Right after Jesus has this interaction with the Samaritan woman, the disciples come back. And it says this, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. Remember, the disciples had gone into Sychar, this town, to get food. So they come back and they say, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? They're so dumb. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. The purpose of Jesus brings him satisfaction. He finds satisfaction and sustenance from doing God's will, from accomplishing his purpose, this ultimate good, right? We, we experience that on, this, on, on a little scale where when we do good work, when we accomplish something, when we um, you know, ha have some satisfying meal or some, some good thing in our life, we feel this sense of satisfaction. And Jesus goes, man, how much more satisfying would it be to, to do an ultimate good, 
to actually do the thing for which we were created, to bear witness to God, to bear witness to the gospel and to see someone respond in faith. I would ask you, have you ever experienced that? Have you ever shared the gospel with someone and seen them respond in faith? And if the answer is no, man, begin to pray for that. Pray for that opportunity to not only express, to be persistent, to preach, to be patient, to accomplish the purpose, right? Four Ps, you can remember it. But then to actually see the power of God play out in that person's life and to experience the kind of satisfaction, that, that feeling of being sustained by the work of God in your life. Begin to pray that you would see that and pray that you would have the boldness, the persistence, the patience to actually work see the work of God through you for your loved one in your life. We have an opportunity to see the power of God move through us and for those who we love, not just in crazy times like coronavirus where, you know, it can be maybe a little more obvious, but at all times, right? Like this persistence and preaching and patience, this is, this is always God's strategy to work through us to bring about salvation in the lives of his people. Thanks for listening. For more information and podcast episodes, head to iconchurch.org.